At Kroger, we know the minute a tomato is picked, the fresh timer starts. The sooner we get our produce to you, the fresher it is. That's why we've shortened the time from harvest to home for our tasty tomatoes, strawberries, and salads. So no matter how you shop, you have more time with your fresh produce. Kroger, fresh for everyone. And now, shop what you love and save $2 on each participating item when you buy three or more with your card. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk About It. This is Taylor, your host, and today is the last episode of Let's Talk About It with a guest. I will be back next week with a solo episode, and we'll be sharing a bit more of what's going on for me in my personal, professional life, and what to expect going forward in terms of uh, the podcast, and just giving you all a little bit of an update as to where I'm at. But for today's episode, I am so thrilled to finally be in-depth covering STIs. Now, this is a topic that's kind of came up a bit throughout the podcast, but we haven't really focused in on it. And to no specific reason other than, you know, all the other things, we're front and center. And I'm sorry that this episode has not come sooner. Um, There obviously should be several episodes on this, uh, but I hope that from sharing the work that this guest has done that you will be able to find more resources on this topic. So for today, we're going to be talking with Janelle, who's the executive director of the STI Project. Uh, She's an adjunct professor and is also a spokesperson for PositiveSingles.com. She's an STI plus certified sexuality educator um, who's just really been like dismantling the stigmas and reclaiming STI narratives through awareness, education, and acceptance all since 2012. Uh, You might be familiar with her work. You might recognize her. If you're not familiar with the STI Project, I highly, highly highly recommend that you click the link on the episode notes um, and you check out. uh, She has a managing herpes toolkit, which is fantastic and has been reviewed by her medical board. So please, please also super affordable uh, and I think is on sale right now. So head right on over there, click the links and make sure to get the toolkit for yourself, for a partner, for a friend. Um, I really hope that in today's episode, you feel seen, you learn something, you maybe challenge uh, your feelings or your thoughts or your beliefs around STIs, your relationship to your body, your relationship to your perception of people with STIs. Um, and as always, I hope you are coming into this podcast with an open mind, open ears, and an open heart. So with all of that said... Let's talk about it. All right. So welcome, Janelle, to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, There's so many things around STIs. Like, I can't believe it's taken me this long to do an episode on it, but I'm very excited to be doing it with you because you have the STI project. Yes. Yeah. It's a topic that gets avoided a lot, even with folks Mm -hmm. who speak to human sexuality often. It just is not usually everyone's cup of tea or like most Mm -hmm. excitable topic. So that's understandable. I'm just glad Mm -hmm. you're talking about it. 
Yeah. Well, it's definitely, it's been on my mind and I'm always like, oh yeah, like, no, we need to talk about SGIs and everything. Um, but wanting to make sure that I like do it justice, if you will. Um, would love if you could share a bit about like how the STI project came to be. Absolutely. So the STI project is 10 years old this year, and um, I launched it 10 years ago alongside STI STD Awareness Month, which is now STI Awareness Week. And um, it was as a result, my big why was because of my personal experience. At 16 years old, I contracted genital herpes, and I struggled for years and years with the shame and stigma Um, Mm -hmm. and just had trouble with how I was approaching relationships. And it just, it it snowballed into so many other aspects of my life. But then finally coming full circle at 29 years old, I was in an amazing relationship. I'd had multiple amazing relationships and I was feeling good in in myself, in my whole self-esteem and my overall self-worth and who I was as an individual. And I realized like, wait a minute, these two things don't add up. What I'm told that I'm supposed to feel about myself because I have herpes or an ST, any kind of STI does not match how I truly feel about myself, does not, um, the, the two things didn't coincide. And so I thought there is a problem here and I want to delve into fixing it. And so ultimately that's mm-hmm. really what the STI project is, is a resource that talks about not only living with an STI, but also prevention. And so we run the gamut of safer sex and ways in which to reduce risk. And then also how to disclose and what does this mean mm-hmm. for your sex life and relationships moving forward. And we really cover everything. And so there weren't a lot mm-hmm. of people doing that and a lot of people talking about it publicly. And yeah. um, and so I decided that I needed to help usher in that conversation, not necessarily to be the voice or representative of all people, but to provide a resource that I desperately needed when I was 16 years old and that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So much in what you said there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think, I mean, the, the disclosure piece, that I feel like is a very controversial thing because it is, herpes specifically is like the most... I think, in my opinion, at least, the most like stigmatized STI that there is. Yeah, I even think that in some ways it's more stigmatized than HIV, and yeah, and I think that 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 is for that's multifaceted, but in twofold. One, there's been a lot of work done by HIV educators, activists, patient advocates, and and etc. since the 80s, and so there has mm-hmm. been some headway made. But with herpes, because it's such a benign condition. And what I mean by that is for most people who have it, it's no more than a nuisance. And so so many people are asymptomatic. They don't even have outbreaks. What you might think of as like a traditional herpes outbreak and what it might look like to have herpes. And so it's really kind of a non-issue. So it's easy to be the butt of all jokes because it's Mm -hmm. not this debilitating, potentially life-altering death sentence, um, which no, no STIs really actually are. There's a misconception, of course, around all of that. But so it's easy to be, it's like the last bastion of acceptable shaming is what I like to say, because we know that we're Mm -hmm. not going to shame someone about their race or their sexual orientation. And there are all these things that we know better now, but that is still the one that gets under the rug that gets by people that people do not say, Hey, that's not okay. Like that's someone I know that's someone I love and respect. And you know, they're Mm -hmm. just, there isn't a a stop gap put in place to stop that from happening yet, at least at this point. So yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. it's of all like comedy, late night TV, you know, all Mm -hmm. of that stuff you hear all of the time. And 
to what you said about disclosure. It's the number one question that I get every time that I Mm. talk to someone newly diagnosed. It's the number one, the biggest fear that people have. Even folks who aren't newly diagnosed and who've had herpes for years are still absolutely petrified of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How do you find the differences between how people disclose? Because I've had this conversation with friends and like, I don't think people with oral herpes, people who say they have, you know, cold sores, which is oral herpes, they don't disclose in like my understanding of society, of socializing. I've never heard a conversation of someone with oral herpes. How do I disclose this to someone that I'm going to make out with, to someone that I'm going to perform oral sex on, right? Like I feel like there's such a difference there and that the disclosure fear is like really for genital herpes. Absolutely. 100%. And the thing is, is really ethically, we should be disclosing all of it. If we have oral herpes, Mm -hmm. the reason that that doesn't happen though, is one, the socialization, there is not a stigma associated with cold sores Mm -hmm. and it's so common and it's just a a non-issue most of the time. People either assume everyone has it or it's just not a big deal if you do. But then secondarily, they don't Mm -hmm. realize that herpes gets transmitted from oral to genital very commonly. It's actually the most common way that it's transmitted in the UK and it's becoming one of the most common ways that it's transmitted in the US. So, Mm -hmm. and then people are shocked all of a sudden, then they have a genital infection and they're like WTF, like, oh no, I have genital herpes and it's so bad. And it's like, well, it's just the same as the herpes on your mouth pretty much um, in all sense of purposes anyways. And so, yeah, it's, it's the huge there is just not a, nobody is worried about it when it's oral. And then it ends up being mm. the, the lack of education is the problem, really. People not realizing mm. that this is, it can all be transmitted in that, in that same way. Yeah. What do you think like <laughs> contributes to the lack of intense or the, the difference of that intense stigma, the lack of disclosure for folks with oral herpes? Like how, how do we think we got to that point where it's not something people are that stressed about to the point where they don't even consider disclosing? Right, right. We've made one herpes bad and one good, just depending on the location on the body. And there's a few things that contribute to it. Um, I think really the biggest part is a lack of information around what the difference is and that there really isn't a large difference and that they can be transmitted that way. And not only that, but it's because it's associated with genitals. So anything associated Mm -hmm. with genitals and sexuality gets shamed and there's fear and there's, um, and sexual shame is really pervasive. It has the potential to impact multifacets of our life and of our psychology, of our overall Mm -hmm. self-worth and value and how we view ourselves as whole humans when we experience sexual shame. That's, and because you're into psychology and working on your PhD in this, so I think you'll appreciate this. What's really fascinating about the difference between shame and sexual shame is they're a part of the same tree, but different 
branches. And what I mean by that is so everyone in the whole world has experienced shame at some point or another. And shame, Mm -hmm. how we experience it from a psychological perspective is we're like embarrassed and we think, oh, that's so stupid. We look back on that experience and we're like, oh, so cringeworthy. And I just feel Mm -hmm. I feel dumb about that. Mm-hmm. When we experience sexual shame, how that gets internalized and how that's different from actual regular shame is that not only do we feel like that thing is bad, but then we feel like us is bad. Us as humans are bad and gross and we're disgusting and we're disgusted mm-hmm. by it. We we experience disgust as an emotion as opposed to just embarrassment, um, which is kind of a subset. But it's as opposed to looking at that event, that circumstance as that's awful and shameful and I feel yucky about it. We, we, mm-hmm. we project that onto our whole beings when we experience sexual shame. And so I think that's why it's so pervasive. It's so impactful. It has a potential. And that's why if, if it's associated with our genitals, if herpes is associated with our genitals, it's immediately mm-hmm. shame inducing. And we project that under our whole being, our whole viewpoint of ourselves is now all of me is bad because of this very common thing that is relatively mm-hmm. benign for the most majority of people who have it, um, you know, mm-hmm. then we have this this giant impact of something that really shouldn't have such a large impact, but it's because of uh, how we view society as a society, mm-hmm. how we view sexuality and our, and our human sexuality as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think people don't view oral herpes as an STI, They don't view it as something that is sexually transmitted because it is not your genitals. And we did have a listener question around this. She shared an experience where uh, a friend had said, you know, to not use her chapstick because she had cold sores and that she had then later learned that cold sores were herpes. And then of questioning, well, if I used her chapstick, then does that mean that I got an STI from using her chapstick? Yes. I get that question a lot because we cover, there are over 30 STIs, according to the World Health Organization. Most people are only familiar with like four or five of them. You can only usually get tested for four or five infections. When you're getting Mm -hmm. a full panel done, you're only getting tested for four to five infections, typically, unless you're ordering private testing. And even then, you still can only access like 10 to 12 infections. So there's still so many more that we're not we're not familiar with, we don't hear about, we don't have education around. But some of those are in this gray area where they can be an STI and sometimes they're not. So for instance, like scabies or molluscum, um, those are parasitic infections. Well, molluscum is a viral infection, but they affect the skin. Scabies affects the skin, molluscum does too. Um, Two different types, two different types of pathogens. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that those infections are commonly um, contracted when you are a child and in childcare settings. And so in those mm. circumstances, when most children get scabies or molluscum, they're not getting an STI. They're getting an infection that was transmitted in a different way. And the only the only part that dictates it, it it's something being an STI is how it was transmitted. So if it wasn't transmitted sexually, for that person, then it's not technically an STI, but the whole idea of something being sexually transmitted because of how we feel around human sexuality in general and all the shame we feel around sexuality, everyone's like, no, 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 I contracted it from a toilet seat or chapstick or um, or sharing a glass. Everyone wants to blame it on something other than because of sex and because we feel so 
awful and bad around anything that might happen as a result of sex that is negative. And there are so many Mm -hmm. things that can happen. There's so many wonderful things that can happen, but with all risks, there is an equal and opposite reward and opportunity. And sometimes you just end up contracting something. Sometimes it just happens because even you can do your best, your due, due diligence and all of the preventative things, and then you still wind up with an STI and people are absolutely mortified about having that qualifier that they got something mm-hmm. sexually. All right. Now we're going to take a short break right here because I want to make sure that before the end of this episode, I get to share this with y'all because it's kind of a game changer. And I'm not even like, I'll be honest, I'm not even going to front. At first I was like, oh great. Another like personalized hair care brand. Okay. (laughs) But y'all pros seriously came correct. Okay. Like they take the no one size fits all solution very seriously. They make hair care that's custom. That's not just custom. It's like effective because it's so personal. Like in their consultation, you know, there's like a quiz and you're like, you know, you answer these questions like before and then they come up with a unique blend of ingredients made just for you. They asked like really unexpected questions about like my eating habits and my damage level and my exercise that I was like, okay, they taken me as like my whole person that I am. All right. And Honestly, they like very much on brand for me, very much something I love here. They are a carbon neutral certified P Corp and an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. So all of their, all of their ingredients are sustainably sourced, cruelty free. Um, and they are like the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral, which is huge. Okay. Like y'all, the ocean was on fire this year. Okay. This is, (laughs) this is very good. We need more companies doing this. And I love, I love that they're doing it. Um, and so I want to share a little bit of what like my routine is now. First of all, I feel very sophisticated. I'm doing a pre-shampoo hair mask. Didn't even know that that was like a thing. Okay. So before I even get in the shower, I leave in this hair mask for like 15 to 30 minutes. And then I get in and rinse out. Like I do with like, you know, I make my hair damp first. Then I go in and do that. The shampoo smells so freaking good, okay? And all of these I uh, customized to really actually target my dryness and my flakiness. So, you know, because it's it's that time of year, okay? I'm not even going to act like I'm all moisturized and shit. I'm working on it. And this has really been helping. And so the conditioner, first of all, they, it comes with like a whole ass booklet, okay? Like this is like they are really prepping you to take better care of your hair, the conditioner instructions said to finish with cool water for maximum shine. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Didn't even consider the fact that with the scolding hot water in the shower to wash my hair, maybe like wasn't the best thing to be doing. So now I rinse with cool water and my curls feel like so much shinier and healthier and also also less flakier. But I think that's also because of the products I've been using. And then they also gave me a curl cream, which I freaking love. And I also use to touch up my hair once it's like fully dry and everything. And honestly, think y'all should try this. Pros is a healthier hair regimen with your name all over it. Like seriously, you take your free in-depth hair consultation and you can get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash Nolan. That's P-R-O-S-E.com slash Nolan. And if you don't know how to spell Nolan, it's N-O-L-A-N. 
It's also on the name of the podcast. So pros.com slash Nolan for your free in-depth, I'm telling you, it's in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off. So like you learn some cool shit about your hair. You're able to set your hair care goals. And then they're like, here you go. Here are the products that are going to help you get there. And here's a little discount. Okay. So be sure to check it out. Pros.com slash Nolan. And with all that, we'll get back to the show. Then at that point, because they're feeling that sexual shame, which reflects on their whole being, it's like, not only did something not um, desirable happen as a result of the sexual experience, but now Mm -hmm. I'm bad as a whole because this happened and I had this occur and I did this and it makes their whole viewpoint of the activity, even though it was as a result of just one specific activity, it makes their whole viewpoint of them as sexual beings feel bad and gross and dirty and wrong. You know, it it gets Mm -hmm. projected onto the whole being the whole self. And yeah. So, and I get that question, like so many times, like, oh, mono is not an STI. Well, it depends on how you train, how you contracted it. Did you contract Mm -hmm. it from activities that are sexual in nature? And then, then yes, it is. It's just, that's just simply denoting how something was contracted, but it, it brings up so much, um, shame and and issue and stigma. Yeah. Yeah. Brings up a lot of fear because Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, when you receive some kind of STI diagnosis, it feels like it is completely changing your identity and that you now are this thing. Yes. Yes. You are this bad thing. You are bad as a whole. Your whole being, you being sexual was bad and naughty. And and, and none of that's true, of course. We know all of that mm-hmm. is wrong. Sexual, every every being is a sexual, every human is a sexual being. How you, even if you're not um, engaging in activities and that, but that, that in and of itself, that choice is part of your, your sexuality and how you decide to move through this world as a sexual being, but it's part of our overall health and wellness. And for most people, sexual activity and pleasure is a necessity for your overall mental health, your physical health and your wellness, that connection, that intimacy, Mm -hmm. But and how that looks for all people is going to be very different, of course. But none of it is mm-hmm. just bad inherently because something bad happens. I mean, if we catch a cold somewhere and we go to the movie theater and, of course, pre-COVID, I guess movie mm-hmm. theaters are opening back up. So post-COVID, too. But And if we kept, we can track COVID. We're not saying we're bad as humans and we should never function in society ever again. We should never leave our homes because we're just so bad. But what when someone contracts an STI... It's like, I should never have sex again. I shouldn't have been in the first place. I was so awful. Mm -hmm. Shame on me. And we just don't do that. Like if we get a cavity, you can, you get poison ivy while hiking in the woods. Does that mean you should never go hiking again? Like, absolutely not. You know, there's risks in all things. um, But the risk associated with, with sex in general and, and that kind of partnered intimacy, physical intimacy with someone else gets looked Mm -hmm. at in a wholly, completely different way. And it's so harmful. It causes so much emotional distress and pain. The biggest negative outcome of an STI, if you have access to any kind of healthcare resources, and this is all STIs, not just herpes, is the psychological outcome, is the psychological Mm -hmm. ramifications, not the physical manifestations. Because for so many, for the vast majority of people, they're asymptomatic no matter what STI they have and or they're curable or treatable, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. it's the long-term overall psychological damage that it does because it can be a traumatic experience for many people and often is. 
Yeah. And I think a large part of that trauma that does come up too is often because people aren't having the conversations around disclosure and then things happen and then it is like, holy shit, I didn't I didn't have an opportunity to consent to this because I just wasn't aware of it. It wasn't communicated, right? Maybe that person didn't even know because maybe they weren't tested or they thought they were tested, but the screening didn't specifically include something like herpes or something else maybe that they thought they were getting tested, tested for that they actually weren't. Right. Oh yeah, all the time. And and that and then that's the shock. It's like the few people who I talk to, because most people don't get education around this. They don't have supportive, supportive networks and family members and communities that all help to educate and um and empower people around their sexuality. But the few who have been brought up in environments where they either had access to comprehensive sexual health information um, and or they were in a community where that was supported and spoken about. Those people who end up contracting an STI usually move past it so quickly and, and kind of forward from it because you can't not experience something that you've experienced and it always come, kind of informs your new experiences going forward, but they're not traumatized by it. They're they're mm-hmm. not thrilled about it because no one wants any kind of new infection. I don't want a cavity, poison ivy, or the cold tomorrow, yeah. or COVID for that matter. But those things happen. And so because I'm informed about them, because I'm aware that these are risks that exist, I deal with it and move forward. And with an STI, it's like people get stuck. And it's because of that lack of information around how likely it is that they're going to contract one. The vast majority of all people end up contracting an STI at some point. So mm-hmm. you you can do all of the safer sex things. You can be is risk averse and mitigate your risk as best as possible and still contract an STI. And you're likely to, you probably will. <laughs> the bearer mm-hmm. of bad news here, but knowing that helps you to know like, okay, it's not the end of the world. And yes, this is not ideal. I still don't necessarily want this. Like no one's signing up for herpes. I get it. I'm not, I don't have a line at my door. Like, please, can I get your herpes? And mm-hmm. you know, like, I get that. I understand if I can get rid of it without there being a risk, I would, but I'm, I can't, and I'm not going to take some experimental drug because I'm so miserable with it because it really doesn't impact my life very much. So that's mm-hmm. the that's what we're looking for is to have that kind of outcome and to see that huge difference between the few folks who I've worked with who end up saying like, yeah, I had an amazing, like my parents always talked about sex and I, I was in Oregon or something or Washington where there is comprehensive safer sex education mm-hmm. and they're just nonplussed by a little bit. Like they're not thrilled because it's still not ideal and that's not what everybody would like to happen, but they're like, okay, yeah. well now what do I do moving forward? Like I want some practical resources and okay, cool. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's so much better for them. You know, it's just such as mm-hmm. it helps people overall. And we know this about comprehensive sexual health education in general. The research says that the more information you have, the better you're going to feel about the decisions you're making. And it's not going to encourage people to act or behave in a certain way, but it makes it so that when they do make those decisions and if any outcome is less than desirable, which is even the risk of relationships and the harm that can happen amongst relationships, emotional and things that aren't necessarily Mm -hmm. sexual in nature, they're more prepared for that. They know Mm then that they don't have to accept an unhealthy relationship or be in a relationship that's unhealthy for longer than they need to, et cetera. Like it just empowers people. And that's where I want to see everyone. I mean, we've got a ways to go, but that's Mm -hmm. the end goal. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the whole process of disclosure and the process of like responding to that disclosure. Because I know we talked a little bit about like, you know, for a lot of people, it's not something that they consent into, but there is also, if there is that disclosure, then in some ways you are consenting to the risk and to the possibility of that. Uh, And some people don't consent after that disclosure. Um, And wondering if you can kind of share, you know, any any tips or advice for people in terms of going about disclosure or if you have personal experiences that you're open to sharing around that too? Yeah, absolutely. I have so so much that is helpful, I think. And and I didn't always do it right, right? Like I contracted herpes at such a young age, didn't have the resources. This is not an excuse, but it's the reasons why this happened. And one Mm -hmm. of my motivations behind the work that I do now and then when I launched 10 years ago was that I didn't always ethically disclose and I didn't, I knew I wasn't a bad person, bad, good people can do crappy things to one another mm-hmm. without being wholly bad. And I knew that there, yeah. I didn't want that to be continued in my life. I didn't want to keep doing things that I didn't feel were ethical and supportive of mm-hmm. the relationships that I wanted and that reflected those kinds of relationships. So that said, I'm like, part of the reason why I talk about that is because if we can't even admit that a problem exists, we can't work on fixing it. So yeah, that's my energy around that. But I think part of the fear and the problem around disclosing and the idea around disclosing and why it petrifies people so much right now is that the onus and the responsibility always feels like it's very heavily weighted toward the person who has the disclosure to make, who has an STI and and knows that, yes, ethically, they need to let someone know in advance. If it's a long-term infection, you don't have to tell anybody about your past in your sexual history and et cetera, unless that's something you really just want to share if it's not relevant in the present. However, this responsibility feels like people have this admonition that they have to admit to this very shameful, very bad thing about themselves that people are going to think is a deal breaker. And really, it, we, we, when we do that and when we talk about it in that kind of light, we're doing the folks with STIs and all people a disservice because this should be a conversation, mutual, reciprocal amongst all parties involved. And, and because the people with an STI need information in return too. If we're having a safer sex sexual health conversation, not only is my status important, but the other person or persons involved, their status is important too. And how do we want to mitigate risk together? Do we want to move forward with this? And if so, like super cool. And it can be a fun, sexy conversation. It doesn't have to be super awkward and be flirty. Um, And even if it is a little awkward, like that helps breed vulnerability, breeds intimacy. So being honest and Mm -hmm. saying like, I don't even know how to have this conversation just because, you know, I don't have a lot of good practice or whatever, but I, but this is important for me to talk to you about, et cetera. But we want to know about their status, their testing, et cetera. And because the people with an STI are just as at risk, if not more, um, in multi ways, emotional, legal, and physical. Once you have an STI, you're more likely to contract another STI. So from a physical standpoint, that's important. And um, and then emotionally, of course, and uh, there's emotional risk in all relationships, but hopefully the relationships are worth it. And and then mm-hmm. legal. Now, I'm not an advocate for the, the criminalization of, of non-disclosure, yeah. but because it is a current reality, depending on your STI, depending on where you live, it is either criminally prosecuting, it's either, you could either prosecute it as a criminal offense 
and or it could be prosecuted as a civil offense. So if it's not a criminal offense, depending on the STI and the, the location, of course, um, you still could be sued in court and in a civil in a civil manner. And if they mm -hmm. find out that you were aware kind of thing. So there's all of these risks to consider. And I care about the health and the wellness of the person with the STI, if not more than even the folks who don't know or don't have an infection. And a lot of times it's they don't know because they've never been tested or they think they have mm -hmm. for all the things, which you can't be. And like you you said, you know, you're only getting tested for a few infections and most people just mm -hmm. assume they've been tested for everything and they're negative and all of this stuff. And it's just this lack of information. So to answer your question, though, about the tips. So I think, of course, we want to disclose before putting someone at risk. So before engaging, but when you decide to do that, whether it's upfront, yeah. immediately upon meeting some people, which that works for some folks, and or whether um, you wait a little bit until you've established some trust and you think the relationship is headed mm -hmm. in that direction, that's going to be different for all folks. We want to do it clothed and sober as best as we can so that we're not coercing anyone and so that we know that the people who are making these decisions, that they can do that fully informed and empowered. Um, and then, though, from there, this is where it gets supportive, especially towards someone who has an STI. You get to decide the level of information that you share around. The only thing that is required from an ethics standpoint is that you tell someone about your status. You are not required mm -hmm. to share how many partners you've had, how you contracted it, um, really anything else about your sexual history and past, unless you feel that it's relevant and that's something about your story that you want to share at that point in time and you get to make that decision. And also I think it's important to do it in an environment that feels safest for the person doing the disclosure. So sometimes that's online or in a text message. It doesn't have to be face-to-face -face and in person. That's not always practical anyways. Um, and then I like to share a couple of resources, usually like a fact-based resource that's really clinical and kind of straight and cut and dry to the point, like uh, the American Sexual Health Association or the CDC. And then I like to share another resource that's a little more storytelling focused. It doesn't necessarily have to be the STI project. That'd be awesome. But whatever mm -hmm. suits you and whatever you resonate with that is that speaks to the human component of having an STI, it humanizes the experience. Mm -hmm. So they realize that this is quite common and what that might look like and how that can look a whole lot of different ways for a lot of different mm -hmm. people. And then I try and do my very best to give them a beat. And because also we're if we're receiving information, we might need to take a beat and digest and determine whether or not this is going to be practical and whether we're still interested in moving forward and how that might look for us. And then, of yeah. course, this is easier said than done, but try not to take that information or that response personal. All people mm -hmm. deserve a compassionate and empathetic response. And even if the, if the end up, the end game or the answer is no, um, as long as that's done in a respectful and thoughtful way, like, of course, that's everyone's prerogative to make that decision for themselves and whether that's going to be a good fit and whether they're willing to consider that risk at that point in time. But any mm -hmm. response that is not kind and that is cruel is not a reflection of the person who is receiving the disclosure. It's 100% a projection of what's going on inside that person. Um, and their education, their view on sexuality, like it's multifaceted and lots of components that go into it. We don't necessarily need to pathologize these individuals, but we also don't need to receive that kind of response because mm -hmm. no one deserves that in, in return. And so that's a good indicator of whether or not that relationship was going to be beneficial for the individual who was doing the disclosure anyhow. So oftentimes that's yeah. a gift, even if it's a no. 
Because a no, mm-hmm. a no one place is a yes someplace else. As much as like, you know, some sometimes these things are like easier said than done because it's still okay to be disappointed, right? Like if you were mm-hmm. into this person and you're really hoping our persons and you're really hoping that this was going to head in, the, in that kind of direction and you were yeah. looking forward to some sexy time, like it's totally okay and valid to be brokenhearted about it. But it is not yeah. a reflection of all future relationships. It is not... It is not indicative of how everyone moving forward is going to respond to that same disclosure. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, super important for folks to know. And and some of it just takes a little bit of practice. It's still going to be scary because mm-hmm. there's risk and we're nervous about a response. Um, and that's okay. Like, it's okay to have some fear around that because when we take risk, we do have some fear. But we can't get better at it. We can't feel more confident or more empowered about it if we don't try. And you're never going to get a yes if you don't ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But then waiting for that, yes, has all kinds of anxiety attached to it. (laughs) You know, and it's funny because simultaneously, it's like, that's also that new relationship energy. That's part of the fun Mm -hmm. and the like turmoil of a new relationship. Like it's exciting and so scary at the same time, but this is why we do it because that's, it's fun. You know, I mean, it's exciting. We're hoping for that. That's why we take these chances. It's part of that human experience and really just Mm -hmm. being in it and present for it. And yeah. Um, yeah, but of course it is, it is. We want, mm-hmm. we want to say, we want them to say yes. We want them to be enthusiastic, especially, I mean, if we're digging them and they're enthusiastic and we're enthusiastic about them, like we hope that's going to be reciprocated. Um, mm-hmm. and just, but the reality is it, it isn't always, and it just doesn't yeah. necessarily have anything to do with the STI status. A lot of times it's, it's an indicator, like, again, this is not always easy to receive and hear, but it's a, they weren't that into you anyways, is, is mm-hmm. what that is telling you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's good to know. Like, I don't necessarily yeah. want to be with somebody who's not as into me as I am into them, you know? I mean, ultimately mm-hmm. that's not what we want, but it can still be disappointing when it's like, oh shit. Like I really was hoping that was going to work out, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a practice definitely in like feeling your feelings and allowing space for them um, and, you know, identifying how you cope with the discomfort, the possible rejection, the vulnerability of it all. Um, We did get a question that I wanted to ask you. Um, Someone asked if (laughs) what our thoughts were on having to be tested on The Bachelor, but thoughts on that perpetuating STI stigma. Yeah, I've thought about that because I've heard it in the press um, Mm -hmm. quite a few times. And that they specifically tease out herpes to me is is problematic. And I don't think Mm -hmm. there's necessarily a problem of testing in advance, I think actually that's really smart so that they don't, and I mean, for a lot, from liability purposes, it makes sense. So they mm-hmm. can't say that it's because of the bachelor or, you know, so everyone is very cognizant of everyone's status and that what I've heard. And I don't know how true this is, is that if you test positive for genital herpes, then that excludes your ability to be on the show, which is quite impractical to me. And um, that in and of itself, I, I think 100% plays into stigma too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you on the liability part. And I think it's pretty standard for most reality TV shows where you're going to be dating other people. And there is the possibility that you would be engaging sexually with other folks. Um, you know, there's no like... Uh, 
encouragement or requirements on the show that before you engage with someone that you disclose anything. Um, what I know, you know, there have been past contestants who have shared publicly about their cold source, which is oral herpes. Um, and that did not, you know, disqualify them, uh, from being able to be on the show. So I don't know if there's a difference for the show or for any other reality show uh, of having people with HSV-1 versus HSV-2. Um, and because, I mean, clearly people with HSV-1 who have oral herpes have been allowed on the show. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, the differences of just even transmission and symptoms for HSV-1 versus HSV-2. And because I don't think many people will know what we're talking about. Right. Of course. And most don't. So, and it's understandable. (laughs) You can't know until you do know. And so there's nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with not understanding until you have an opportunity to learn. So yay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And you know that you bring up a really good point too, because if they're testing only for herpes, I, I would support a full panel STI test of just like, mm-hmm. so that and, they definitely know, do like you do, you do urine and you do blood. So okay. I know that they are, I know that there have been, uh, past people who have tested positive for an STI. They take the medication, they're cleared, they go back, they get another test and then they're cleared to go. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And I guess, it still makes me mad about then the then genital herpes and if they're teasing out specifically HSV two diagnosis because mm-hmm. diagnoses because we don't know if somebody tests positive for HSV one it could be in either location so yeah again with a lack of information around the fact that HSV is herpes simplex virus there are two types. And type one was historically thought of as only cold sores, only above the waist, only oral. And it was thought that HSV2 was vice versa, only below the waist and only genital. And so now we know that they can both be in both locations. And HSV2 mm-hmm. is very infrequently oral. So with HSV2, it's more likely that if someone tests positive on a blood test for HSV2, it's more likely that that is a genital infection. However, HSV-1 is not nearly as simple. And so Mm -hmm. HSV-1, it really could be anywhere on the body and very commonly is. And like we said earlier, it's one of the most common ways that herpes is being transmitted now is through oral sex. So that is problematic in and of itself because somebody could still have gotten genital herpes. And so, yeah, I mean... And do we know, has that been public information that someone shared that they do disqualify for HSV-2? No, I don't know. I thought, I thought you were saying that they disqualified for herpes, but not necessarily if people had cold sores, right? So I don't know. I know that past contestants have shared after being on the show, like on their Instagrams and stuff, about having cold sores, about having oral herpes. Um, I don't know if they, so I know that they allowed HSV-1 on. I don't know if people have been rejected from having HSV-2. So, I mean, yes, if they are only rejecting HSV-2 and not rejecting HSV-1 contestants, then absolutely they're perpetuating stigma around, you know, genital herpes. Absolutely. Um, But I'm pretty sure that they give, like for people who do have HSV-1, that at least that we're on the show, you know, that they give you like an antiviral. And so, um, 
wondering if we can get into a little bit of like what treatment looks like for this kind of thing. Yeah. And I know you do have these resources listed as well on the STI project. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I'm still happy to chat about it. And, mm-hmm. and that's, what's interesting is antivirals will cut your risk of transmission in mm-hmm. half. They reduce the viral shedding that happens when you're asymptomatic. And when you have an outbreak, viral shedding happens both times, but not everybody gets outbreaks. And so a lot of people are asymptomatic, yes. have the infection, are able to transmit it to others and do, and have no idea that they have ever had it. Um, and be, Which and is like a part which I think is like an important part of disclosure as well, because it could also like just herpes in general, what a, what a virus, uh, because yeah, you can literally have no symptoms and still be virally shedding and transmit to someone else who then could also be asymptomatic and have no idea now that they have this and continue to show up, uh, negative on, their STI panel screening that they think includes herpes, but doesn't, and just continue to be spreading it. And so when you really think about that, then it's like, well, doesn't everybody have it? Yeah. And, and the vast majority of all people do. It's, it's quite, yeah. honest, but people aren't getting- It's like over 80% of the population, right? Yeah. Two third, well, not quite. Two thirds of the population has um, HSV-1, two thirds. Mm-hmm. And, and then- the numbers for HSV2 are anywhere between one in four and one in six, depending on the place you're getting the statistic. And even if you read the fine print, even on the CDC's fine print, it all says that this number is just a, a guesstimate because herpes is not part of a panel. It's not part of STI testing. It's not currently recommended. Routine testing is not recommended. So um, it doesn't get tested unless you explicitly ask for it. And even if you ask, certain providers won't give it. So it just depends on where you're seeking your testing. And it's not even available at certain places. Like if you go to the public health mm-hmm. department for a full panel STI test, they don't even offer herpes testing. So it just depends yeah. on where you're going and you have to be asking which STIs am I being tested for? And if you want to test for herpes, you have to advocate on your own behalf. When mm-hmm. people disclose and they're interested in moving forward in a relationship and they have a partner who is also considering it, partner partners, then I almost always um, advocate for the, that partner partners to get tested because mm-hmm. if you already have one form, you're less likely to contract another type because you have some antibodies established that reduce your overall mm-hmm. risk um, of contracting a new type of herpes and or you might have the same type Um and you just don't know it. So that really changes the conversation. And most people just assume that they're getting tested, that they are negative because they don't have something on their genitals that they've noticed. And the vast majority of all people are asymptomatic. So I always encourage, like almost always say, it's a really good idea to talk to your partner and partners about testing specifically for herpes, because that will make it, that will alter that conversation. Mm -hmm. And that will alter kind of risk reduction methods, the treatment, like you said. So antivirals, cut risk in half. They cut your overall shedding in half and they cut um, the likelihood of transmission in half. And that's only suppressive therapy. You'd have to take a pill every day. You can also mm-hmm. take antivirals reactive as reactive therapy. Episodic therapy is what it's called. And mm-hmm. that's just taking it when you have signs or symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. And that won't reduce risk of transmission. But condoms cut risk in half as well, again. Yeah. So there's lots of ways and people are always astonished when I say my husband of six years 
or five, well, we've been married five together, six. My husband mm-hmm. doesn't have herpes and all of almost all of my past exes don't have herpes either and never contracted it for me. And I've had very long-term, I'm a serial monogamous. So long-term relationships mm-hmm. with individuals, enjoying my sex life aplenty with very little risk reduction methods because knowing what you have and knowing your status is actually said to research just came out recently in the last like two years that said someone who knows their status and is aware of their status is less likely to transmit yeah. that in and of itself is a risk reduction strategy because you're aware of your mm-hmm. body you notice prodrome symptoms which is if you do get outbreaks people who get outbreaks oftentimes um, not everybody but have some precursors to that like a tingling yeah. sensation etc mm-hmm. and then you can take yeah. an antiviral at that point which mm-hmm. might mitigate the outbreak and might stop yeah. the outbreak from coming on so Suffice and I've to heard say, too that, sorry, I was going to say, I've heard too that some people get like very, very, very horny before an outbreak. And my friend was describing it as like, it's the virus trying to um, spread itself. <laughs> that is honestly, that's the first I've ever heard of that. And that's unusual for me to be like, never heard that. I've, I've heard yeah. all the things. So What I would actually suspect, to be honest, is if that is a person who menstruates, that that's Mm -hmm. hormonal related because menstruation is typically a trigger. Sometimes people get an outbreak when they uh, when they're at or near their period. So I would say Mm -hmm. that it coincides with hormones. And if your hormones are are a bit off or in a specific kind of direction, that can also lower Mm -hmm. your immune system. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of different things happening if there. You're stressed. But- <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. I should have brought that up because I was like, oh, that's an interesting. Like, I'm a, I was like, I think that's a theory. Uh, I don't know that that's factual, but it's an interesting theory. <laughs> well, I will say this: the herpes virus has been around for hundreds and thousands of years, and mm-hmm. um, and stigma around it has been around that long yeah. too. It's not big pharma. It didn't happen from the 80s, and because antivirals came out, which is a big is a big conspiracy theory, right? The, big Pharma mm-hmm. contributed, and some of the advertising plays a part, but it's certainly not the single sole but, cause. But that wouldn't even make sense to me, though, because the fact that it's not even recommended on like a regular checkup screening it tells me that like doctors aren't that pressed about it; they're not that concerned about it. And with that being the case, then like the stigma, I mean, reasonably, should be significantly lowered in that case because it's not even something that like the medical field is like, we really got to get this under control. This is really terrible. This is like, you know, we need to make sure that everybody is tested and that nobody is possibly even having sex with people who could be uh, transmitting herpes when it's like, yeah, you could literally have no symptoms, have nothing and be tested and like you have it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. A lot of the medical, a lot of the medical community doesn't care and they're just not that interested. And some will, some will give awful advice. Like you don't have to tell if you're asymptomatic or if there's no need to know or find out. And I believe in empowerment. And if you want the information about your own body, then go and seek it and find a different provider. And providers are offering service and they're not gods and speaking gospel. So Mm -hmm. you can, you can say like, this isn't, this isn't aligning with my needs for my overall health and wellness. So I need to see someone else. And I absolutely advocate for see someone who you feel is supportive in what you need and you're looking for in terms of your overall health. Mm. But yeah, the herpes virus is tricky though. It, from an evolutionary standpoint, it's been around the stigma and the virus have been around for years and years and years. Shakespeare talked about it. 
it's been he did in, yes and um and Shakespeare talked about it in Greek in ancient times they talked about it um they tried to cauterize the sores they tried to burn them off with with hot irons and <laughs> oh oh gosh they banned kissing because they knew it was a kissing disease it was called the kissing disease they didn't specifically have a name of herpes at that point in time um the name herpean is greek um and it did come it did come from greek and, and, and it's the word derives from um in latin or i'm sorry greek or latin i don't know i'm getting them confused mm -hmm. anyways very old <laughs> and it means yeah. to creep or to crawl and so in and of mm. itself um herpean is where herpes comes from that's the word herpean is where the word herpes comes from and herpean means to creep or to crawl and so yeah. even the connotation the name itself is like not creep or crawl like nothing that creeps and crawls we're, we're not fans of those things you know <laughs> yeah the name itself is is the stigma <laughs> yes exactly so it's been around for so long but the virus itself is quite interesting and very phenomenal researchers speak to this over and over the reason why there isn't a, um, a vaccine and or a cure at this point is because it's tricky. It has found a very creative way to attach to proteins in our nerve endings to go dormant and to basically hide. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that's why it's so easily transmitted. That's why it's, um, even though it's an unstable virus, like it doesn't live on surfaces, but the mm -hmm. way in which it, it habitates humans is quite profound mm -hmm. and is really, is really clever. So even though it's not necessarily intentionally coming up and making oneself horny because <laughs> that's that's probably a result of our hormones at yes. that point in time it is very smart and intentionally it has found its mm -hmm. own way to survive so that we are having a hard time it's very evasive and so we're having a hard mm -hmm. time killing it and getting rid of it so mm -hmm. anyway yeah all very interesting it's kind of it's yeah. some of it's fun now to me I mean a lot of people don't find that conversation mm -hmm. necessarily fun because they're still so enmeshed and immersed in in the stigma and the shame that it's hard to even mm -hmm. be able to laugh a little bit about it. But in some ways, you got to kind of give give herpes a high five for all all of the all of its impact on us. This tiny little virus mm -hmm. that has very little physical impact, but what it's capable yeah. of doing from a psychological perspective is profound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and but some people do have like very. Uh, like, like it can be very painful. It may not happen super frequently. It may come up, you know, when they're super stressed or like around their periods, as you said. Um, but for some people, it is like a painful experience. Yeah. And that's not nothing because with all conditions and, and maladies that impact the human body, it's going to affect all people differently. The vast majority of people don't really have significant symptoms, if any at all. But there are mm -hmm. some who have some very adverse symptoms and they suffer from um, nerve pain and extensive ongoing outbreaks. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, worst case scenarios. And, and that ends up making the experience even more miserable because not being able to handle the physical, like that's the primary. Usually when someone's newly diagnosed, the first thing I say is, well, we want to get your symptoms, managing your symptoms under control. Like if you are having yeah. symptoms, we want you to feel really good about what's happening with your body and how to best reduce the discomfort and the likelihood, the mm -hmm. frequency of outbreaks, the severity, et cetera. Because once you're at that point and you can get past that, then it's like the stigma is a lot bigger 
but at least then mm-hmm. it's not a physical thing. So for the folks who really do have severe outbreaks, who have severe additional symptoms, they're not common, but it's definitely something to know that, that yeah, there's risks. There's still a risk involved. Mm-hmm. And it's not just let's all get herpes kind of thing. Because again, no yeah. one wants a new infection. And it's similar, COVID's taught us a lot of things and not that I'm going to mm-hmm. thank COVID anytime soon for what it's yeah. taught us necessarily, but as a result of COVID, we've learned just like with COVID, some people have no symptoms at all or very mild symptoms and other people are dying. And so it, it can run the gamut, but it's less likely that someone is going to have mm-hmm. severe symptoms with either form of herpes. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what does management treatment options look like for that? I think when it comes to things like oral herpes, people are more informed around that. You know, you put a cream on it or you take a pill. Um, What are the differences, if at all, that you can speak to for treating HSV2 or just when it shows up uh, genitally? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, you can do a combination. Most people choose a combination or try a bunch of different things and feel like and figure out which what works for them in their lifestyle. And so it's going to look different mm-hmm. for all people. Of course, there's prescription management options. You can either take episodic therapy, which is just when you have symptoms, mm-hmm. and or you can take suppressive therapy, which is a pill every day, um, which reduces which reduces the symptoms and the duration, the severity, the 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 um, frequency, and then um, also reduces your risk of transmission. So that's appealing mm-hmm. for a lot of folks for the, those reasons. But then not everybody always wants to take prescriptions. Not everyone has access um, to that kind of healthcare coverage. And so, and some just don't want to take the pill every day and or want to do some more natural and holistic approaches. And herpes impacts are, is, is influenced by our immune system and herpes outbreaks yeah. and symptoms are influenced by our immune system. So building your immune system and making sure your immune system is your whole, um, from all the way from like your adrenals to your uh, microbiome, to your hormones, getting all of that balanced as much as possible and as harmonious and and the healthier you are, the less likely um, you are to get outbreaks. But even if you get outbreaks, it doesn't mean you're unhealthy. Um, Mm -hmm. Some things are triggers Mm -hmm. for people. Like you can eat different things that will help. Um, Lysine is an amino acid Mm -hmm. that is present in lots of foods and arginine is an amino, another amino acid, kind of the opposite of lysine. And Diets high in L-arginine are going to encourage outbreaks. There's a triggering mechanism that encourages more outbreaks. So if you reduce the arginine in your diet and you increase the lysine in your diet, that oftentimes helps people. So there's some diet management strategies um, Mm -hmm. as well as some topical solutions and things for outbreaks that are helpful Mm -hmm. and beneficial. And there has been some research actually done on that. I have a managing herpes toolkit that I sell Mm -hmm. um, that's like an entry-level price point for some of the other courses and things that I offer intentionally so that it can help people kind of move past that that yeah. component of like the actual outbreaks and stuff like that. But we mm-hmm. speak to that of like understanding your prodrome, what are your warning signs that, is, that you might be having an outbreak, what your triggers specifically might be. And they're going to be different for all people. Sometimes it's food and nuts. Sometimes it's hormones and sun. Sometimes it's all of those things. It just depends on your body, your specific health and what your lifestyle looks Mm -hmm. like. But there are definitely ways in which you can incorporate like holistic and more natural options. And then there's Mm -hmm. some research to support that. They're actually doing 
there's a whole subset of the Food and Drug Administration that is researching holistic and natural options and things like um, oils and herbs and supplements, vitamins and minerals, all to help with conditions such as herpes. Mm-hmm. And when you said topicals, can you speak to some of that? You said that there's research being done and like what kinds of things people would use for topical if people weren't taking pills? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So aloe, aloe vera, uh, aloe vera and mm-hmm. vitamin E as the outbreak is healing, um, will heal the, the, the healing or will speed the healing process and, and the healing time before, as soon as the outbreak happens, lemon balm, um, and you can get it in an oil, you can get it in a tea, you can eat it. Their lemon balm has been studied and is an antiviral mm-hmm. and you can apply it directly to an outbreak. Um, you would want to dilute it, not applying the lemon balm. You want to put it in a carrier oil, but lemon balm in and of itself, there's research been done that says that it helps reduce outbreaks, symptoms, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, what are a couple of the other ones that we always talk about? Oh, zinc as well. Most people are are deficient in zinc and don't have enough in their diet. You can either eat more zinc and, or you can supplement, but that helps build your immunity. There's research Mm -hmm. been done specifically around herpes and zinc. Um, And Hmm. bee products, propolis is a bee product. And there's like propolis cream um, and salves and things that you can purchase. So bee products, vitamin E, zinc, lemon balm, echinacea, those have all been studied specifically related to herpes, and there's some significant evidence around it. There needs to be more studies done, um, mm-hmm. but initially the the research is all leading toward this helps reduce outbreaks. Um, mm. Yeah. And oh, and I think too, when someone's having an outbreak, we always recommend a sitz bath with Epsom salt. So Epsom mm. salts in your bath or even just a bath that only is on the genitals is a sitz bath, or you can put Epsom salts in your whole bath, but not to sit in it for longer than like 15 minutes because mm-hmm. too much moisture can actually make the outbreak worse. But the sitz bath, the Epsom salts specifically helps speed up, it helps dry out the outbreak itself. Um, and then mm. lidocaine. Lidocaine is a painkiller. And you can get it over the counter at the pharmacy. If you're really uncomfortable, put some lidocaine on it. A thin layer because, again, too much um, moisture will mm-hmm. make, the, make the outbreak last longer. Cotton underwear. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, those are the ones that I typically recommend for people to make the, make, to make the experience a little less, um, a little more comfortable and a little less, a little less um, lengthy, basically. And to empower people. Mm-hmm. Like, you can do things to make yourself feel better. You don't just have to suffer, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you have all of this and so much, like so many other resources um, on the STI project. Dot, it's dot com, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I thought it was dot com. Um, and wondering if you can share any other kind of places that people could reach out or support your work or, you know, learn from you, uh, work with you in any capacity. Where could people go to find that? Yeah, on the stiproject.com is the easiest way to find me. I, I'm, I'm also on all social medias right now. I've got a mm-hmm. reel that's going viral with 4 million views. You might have seen me. <laughs> Which one? Yeah, it's kind of fun because I'm getting a lot of, re- of people reaching out and just telling me how much mm-hmm. they appreciate it. And all of that always helps just because it's it's yeah. hard work. And um, mm-hmm. and sometimes I get dicks and assholes like 
coming at me and saying rude things. And so that makes that all worthwhile so that I feel, um, I get much more positive response, but anyhow, I teach a couple of free courses too, one on disclosure and rejection, and then another one on fear, shame, and stigma and the Mm -hmm. beginning steps to moving forward from a diagnosis and fear, shame, and stigma around it. So there's some free, lots of free resources, actually, everything, all the STI project, um, there's not a paywall. And then I do mm-hmm. teach a couple of paid courses and the managing herpes toolkit is paid. That's right now it's on sale for $21. So get it while mm-hmm. it's hot, but yeah, yeah, reach out to me. I mean, any of the social media and I'm always posting additional information and resources and tools and stuff like that, that are free and accessible as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for like everything that you've shared, your personal experiences, your education, your knowledge here. Um, I know it's a conversation that like isn't had frequently and that hopefully I'm sure was very healing and, you know, connecting and relatable for a lot of people who, you know, might feel really alone in this experience. I hope so too. Absolutely. You're not alone as much as it feels like it. And it does not have to feel as crappy as it does if you're newly diagnosed. So sending love and support. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for having me and allowing me an opportunity to share and chit chat about this. It is. It's so important, Mm -hmm. I feel. Mm -hmm. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for making it all the way through and keeping your ears, your hearts, and your minds open. It would mean so much to me if you could take a second or two after listening to this episode to leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you're enjoying about the show. I love reading you know, what your favorite episodes are, where you guys listen, um, and definitely feel free to share this with a friend. I mean, part of how we break down the stigmas around these topics is by talking about them, right? And, and sharing them with more people. So definitely share the podcast. Um, and again, really wanting to include all of you in this podcast. So if you have questions or you want to share a thought or an experience, please send in a voice memo to ask.letstalkaboutit at gmail.com. And I'm really excited to keep having these conversations and uh, breaking down these stigmas. So thank you all so, so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll talk to you next time. At Kroger, we know the minute a tomato is picked, the fresh timer starts. The sooner we get our produce to you, the fresher it is. That's why we've shortened the time from harvest to home for our tasty tomatoes, strawberries, and salads. So no matter how you shop, you have more time with your fresh produce. Kroger, fresh for everyone. And now, shop what you love and save $2 on each participating item when you buy three or more with your card. Kroger, fresh for everyone.